You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, friends. I am back today with Dr. Marion Brandon, who's a clinical psychologist and diplomat in sex therapy. She's the author of several books, Monogamy, The Untold Story, which we definitely need to talk about monogamy today, and the ebook Unlocking the Sexy and Surrender, Using the Neuroscience of Power to Recharge Your Sex Life, and you're co-author of the book Reclaiming Desire, Four Keys to Finding Your Lost Libido. Thank you for coming today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Totally. The the first time I ever met you, read you, was I read Goldstein and yours Reclaiming Desire book in my like figuring all this stuff out from my lack, own lack of education. So that was the first time. And then you did, you were part of the testosterone course, which you guys are doing again, 2024, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in Florida, but you can do it remotely. So I watched you do that last year. You're a phenomenal speaker. And my friend Rachel Rubin's like, she needs to be on your podcast. And like, we finally made it happen. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate your diligence in making it happen. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Until we fix everybody's sex lives, this podcast will keep happening. So <laughs> we've, we've got a lot of work to do. Well, you know, one thing that you bring up are the statistics of basically how bad sex is in our country for, for a society that's like seemingly obsessed with sexuality, right? And like trying to be perfect and better and look a certain way and act a certain, like we're obsessed with it. We use sex to sell things as a marketing tool. And then we're completely messed up in the bedroom by and large. I would agree with that. And, and that is such an important point right there, because when people come to my office, they think everyone else is having this amazing sex and what's wrong with them. And, you know, they're so normal and typical, and it is just really such a struggle for just about everybody, at least at times in their life. It doesn't just go smoothly like people think. Well, I mean, that was the name of this podcast, You Are Not Broken, came from me saying that over and over to all the women who came into my office being like, I've never had an orgasm. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like that's lots of them. They're like, I don't, I don't have an orgasm by putting a penis in my vagina. Yeah, you know, you're not broken. Over and over and over, just normalizing people's experiences because, you know, my thesis is we, our sex ed was so crappy. And then we become adults and we get married and we just fall apart, basically. So right. That whole sex ed issue is so concerning to me. And I am very worried about our younger population, adolescents, because their lack of sex ed right now as they're getting thrown into this high tech sex world, they need more preparation than people ever did and they're not getting it. Yeah. And I read somewhere that the sex ed in America now is worse than it was in the 90s. I read that too. Frightening. And they need more, like how to deal with online sexuality, how to deal with, you know, all of that, all the requests for, like, there's such more of a, like, social media sexuality that people in the 90s didn't need to get a sex ed on that. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, you know, I work with adults in my private practice, but I am most worried about adolescents for this reason. Their exposure to this kind of technology, which is overwhelming for many adults, frankly, this more advanced sex tech can be threatening or frightening or anxiety provoking for adults. But these 13 year old kids are seeing it with no way to understand it. So yeah, that is a real concern for me. And then the LGBTQ community who is struggling even more with issues of depression and stress 
have another layer of challenge at that age that we're ignoring. So I could spend three days talking about this. This is a real concern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people people are like, oh, well, the young kids now, they've got so much access to resources. They've got access to online education, which we didn't have. And I'm like, you they just need to spend a week in my clinic and have, you know, the 20-year-old female come in whose boyfriend told her she shouldn't need to use lube. Sex just starts by putting something in her vagina. These young people are not doing any better. No, they're really not. They're learning things from porn that um, and I'm not anti-porn. I want to be clear about that. I may sound like that today because my focus is people's challenges. So as a therapist, that's where I interact and that's where my concerns are. So many people, most people use porn in a way that either feels satisfying for them and helpful or at least not hurtful. So that's research fact. And it's important that we recognize that. Now, now that I made that point, I'm not even sure where I was headed. <laughs> We'll just we'll just jump into because what I see a lot online is like the absolute black and white. More, I mean, I have a female audience on Instagram, but really, them being like, porn is bad, and I think they see it as a threat. They see it as derogatory towards women. They see it as some people see it as cheating, and really don't have a relationship of like how it could be useful, how it can be safe. Can you kind of expand on the black and whiteness of it that a lot of people have? I'm not here to change everybody's mind, but just to kind of like open up their, their perspectives a little bit. I love this topic. I love you're asking this question. I've actually never been asked this before. It's very easy for us to have an emotional reaction to sexual stimuli, like porn, for example. It's very easy for us to go, that's wrong. That's not me. That's not for me. That's not for my partner. Because the, the adrenaline of it and also the reaction bodies can have. So our bodies can react positively, meaning being stimulated by something that our minds say, that's gross. We shouldn't like that. So what you've got now with porn, for example, is a combination of a, an adrenaline rush because you're seeing something that gets your attention and revs you up. Apes watch porn. I mean, this is where primates and there's research on that, that if you show an ape a porn flick or something else and they get it, you know, they, they are trained to watch what they want, they'll choose porn. I mean, it's wild. So there's some adrenaline rush to that. So we get that going. Then we have this perhaps unconscious reaction, a judgment call. That's not good. I shouldn't like that. And all of a sudden it becomes really easy to just push all of that into the category of bad. At least that's how I understand it. And the problem with that is there is so, porn is such a huge array of stuff. Like there's so much there that throwing that whole thing into the garbage means most people are missing something that could potentially be helpful to them in one of their challenges or struggles sexually. So if their desire is lower than they want, their arousal isn't quite where they want it. If they were able to kind of sort through that grab bag of porn and find what actually feels of interest to them, it could help them achieve their own sexual goals. I love that. I love making it a lot more of a gray scenario and knowing that, you know, because of the availability of porn, because of how dopamine inducing porn creation is now. And people argue some unsafe practices going on and exploiting people for the, you know, the commodity of it. It can get a very, very bad rap. And it's easy just to be like, I don't want to even associate with anything that that has some of those streams in it. 
Mm-hmm. And I totally get that. The, the challenge is it's not going away and it's only actually getting more intense. So making that decision for oneself is absolutely empowering and we would only support it. But being aware that, for example, your adolescents are still going to be exposed to it and need some training education about what it all is, even if it's not your cup of tea, I think that's an important message. This amazing podcast could not happen without the support of our sponsors. One sponsor I'm so excited about is Uberlube. I've been using Uberlube and recommending them for years. I give away lube packets in my clinic. Adding lube with intimacy is a no-brainer. And a good silicone lube shows that when you play, you mean business. Uberlube is long-lasting, super slippery, and doesn't have any of that sticky tackiness of the water-based lubes. I find it's great for dry skin, especially skin affected by hormone changes. It's so clean and useful that people use it for their hair and to prevent chafing with sporting activities, too. Next time you reach for the lube, reach for Uberlube. Check out the link in the bio with 10% off. Enter the code NOTBROKEN at uberlube.com. So you you bring up some statistics on your website that I want to just read for people and then kind of get your, your gestalt of like where we are in the world right now. So you say, and this is just data, but these, you know, facts, over 50% of marriages end in divorce, over 40% of women and 30% of men report a sexual concern, 20% of marriages are sexless, over 20% of women report marked distress about their sexual relationships, approximately 30% of spouses have had an affair. Oh, this is not a, a, a small issue. That's right. We have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we absolutely do. And I love you bringing those stats up. I tell those stats to most of my clients when they show up in my office and struggling. Because like we said, when we started talking today, most people do struggle at least at some point in their life. So the goal of having this like extraordinary sex life for a lifetime, probably unrealistic. Doesn't mean you can't make changes and improvements and enjoy your sex life throughout your lifetime, but it requires, I think, significant effort, mindfulness, communication. There's a lot that goes into it. And I think this like proactive behavior, right? And especially women who are socialized as being receptive, keeping the partner happy, kind of like I just don't be too sexual because we'll call you a bad name, right? It's like flying in the face of like, now you want me to be proactive for like, I've never been proactive with sex in my entire life, which is probably how we got to this scenario in the first place. <laughs> but it's like really a behavior change, right? To like, I'll step it up for lack of a better word. I think that's absolutely true. I really across the board for people because some folks think their role is to be like, super directive in bed and they have to be the one that always initiates or always comes up with things that are positive and enjoyable in the bedroom. Like the truth of the matter is we all have to put on a bunch of different hats to create a lifelong enjoyable relationship with sex. Yeah. And I think what you are getting at is like the, how sexual scripts can hurt us, right? Like number one, just monotony, doing stuff the same way all the time. For some people, they love that. Give them the same thing for breakfast, they're happy, right? And for other people, they're like, oh my God, I could take it or leave it because it's just the same stuff all the time. It's difficult. That's so tricky because the same stuff gets boring, but too much unusual stuff can be threatening or uncomfortable or anxiety provoking. And what people have to do is find a sweet spot where they stretch themselves a little bit, 
but not too much. And that sweet spot is likely to change over the course of a lifetime or the course of a relationship. So there's reassessing that situation. Are things too boring or are they too exciting? And how can we find our way back to that middle ground? It's very good advice. Because I think so, you know, like all of the like pop culture sex tips, whether it's a magazine or online is like, People are like, I don't want to do a crazy thing. Like, I have to do that crazy thing to make my sex life better. And, and what you're saying is like, no, <laughs> just turn it up, turn the dial one notch and it can make a big difference. I think that that's more likely to be successful for people when they, rather than dive in the deep end or, you know, stay in the lounge chair, just go into the waiting pool. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. So you wrote a book about monogamy. Let's discuss the unspoken challenges of long-term monogamous relationships and like how you counsel people on them. What are the common themes? What do people like, if you wish people knew going into like a marriage contract, like, okay, your plan is long-term monogamy, just so you know, these are the road bumps. Wow. So I wrote that book in my own personal response to the book on low desire for women that I co-authored with Dr. Goldstein, because I didn't cover that topic in that book. And it felt like this huge deficit. Not, not at the time. At the time, I didn't really think about it as being an important part of that book. But in hindsight, I thought, wow, I missed something really important, which is the whole monogamy piece is more challenging for some people than others. And it can masquerade as low desire for people if monogamy is challenging for them. Monogamy is a tricky thing because it's more challenging for some people, less for others. Some people absolutely flourish in a monogamous sexual relationship. And most people at the beginning of their relationship feel like they love their partner so much, monogamy won't be that difficult for them. Or sex is so great, monogamy will be okay. Because at the beginning of a relationship, for most couples, sex is most exciting. And they also feel, they're more apt to feel closer to their, their love, their devotion, these kind of powerful feelings that are motivating for monogamy. But then what happens as a relationship ages, that primate part of us, I mean, we're all mammals. That's what, it's what we are. That's a part of our biopsychosocial cells. So that piece can become a little louder. And I think louder meaning, wait, this is the same partner and this is getting boring kind of thing. Or wait, there's a new attractive looking potential partner over there. So as relationship ages and that lust factor starts to decrease, that automatic lust factor that's always there, not always, but often there at the beginning of relationship, that starts to decrease, but it gets triggered by the concept of a new partner, for example. This is a complicated topic. I don't want to say that's where the, the challenges begin, but that's where people can often start to notice, well, why do I have fantasies about my coworker and not my partner anymore? Or why do I only self-pleasure to ideas about, you know, my old lover? That stuff is just sort of a part of what happens sexually for people. And it's other stuff, meaning the attractiveness of other partners, for example, or just feeling bored by the monotony of sex. So um, that's when people start to wonder, wow, am I really meant to be monogamous or why is this so challenging? And it'll become confusing. They'll think, well, maybe I'm not meant to be with my partner. Maybe this is the wrong 
marriage or a wrong relationship. I think much of the time what we're dealing with is just this very basic decrease in this natural lust. People don't realize to create, to keep lust going in a relationship requires a lot of effort and active participation. And so this Roving eye is a kind of a typical thing that happens and not to make too much of it. And perhaps monogamy really isn't right for you. It's not the relationship arrangement for everybody, but it is for a lot of people. But it's it's kind of, well, it's very frequently challenging for people to uphold over time. I hope I'm answering this succinctly. It's it's actually, it's such a complicated. It's so complicated. I mean, I think, you know, the, what I'm getting from it is number one, it's complicated. Number two, our brains do things that aren't logical. Like we only have this small part of our brain that's our forebrain that's like, I want to exist in society as normally as possible. <laughs> How am I doing? Like that part of the brain. And then the rest part of the brain's like dopamine. Dopamine, what's interesting, what's sparkly, what's shiny, right? And so it's like, we've got these two parts of our brain and it's like, we're trying to exist with two different hardware systems, basically. And that is so right. And what gets more challenging, I think, for people is that we've got that basic hardware system that's hundreds of thousands of years old, that's part of our primate heritage. And then we've got all this shiny tech that's coming in and opportunities for new partners and all this sort of more modern day sexual opportunity. These things just, they just don't go easily together. Yeah. And, and like, you know, the the ability now of video AI, reality. I can't even guess what's going to happen in five years when I, I can put your face on something else and be intimate with it. Like, it's insane what's happening. And I, and I know you're, one of your interests is kind of keeping your pulse on what's happening. Where do you see it? What's interesting to you? What's concerning to you about the future of like AI sex tech and it, are relationships doomed because your artificial partner is just going to do everything for you? You know what? Such a great question. And it, it is tempting to go there, isn't it? Because, well, it's very, there's so much unknown and the unknown is scary. But this is, again, one of those topics where there's going to be real winners and real losers as sex tech unfolds. And it's not going to be all good or all bad. And some people are going to absolutely benefit and it's going to change their sex lives in some profoundly positive ways. And other folks will feel like it ruined their sex life. So that's all going to be true. And and from my perspective, let me say I got started in this topic kind of by accident. I'm not a techie at all. Um, And I never watched sci-fi or anything like that. But I was living in Boston at the time and I was getting a newsletter from MIT and it was just like this little off the cuff, this is what our researchers are doing. It wasn't stuff that was really published outside of the newsletter. And there was a survey of MIT roboticists. And the question they were asked was, when will robots be humanoid? Now, what struck me, first of all, was it wasn't, will robots be humanoid? The question to them was when, and their answer was like, oh, two decades, five decades, somewhere in there. So I'm sitting there going, wow, like in my lifetime, robots could be humanoid. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't know the difference between a robot and a human, but it does mean that they would move and, you know, like walk around our house kind of looking like people. So as a sex therapist, I thought people are going to want to have sex with that. I let it go. Obviously. (laughs) So then I saw a survey of 
AI experts. So this is the brain right inside the robot. And this was an international conference. This is a published survey. This international conference. And they asked these AI specialists the same question, when will AI be humanoid? So once again, I'm like, really? Because they're not saying, will it? I, I was still on the will it kind of question in my own. <laughs> they're like, when? And they were saying the same kind of thing, a little different for the most part, 20 to 50 years. So now I'm thinking, all right, now I need to learn what this is all about. Because within potentially my lifetime, a robot that will look and sound human will be accessible to people. We need to know about what this really is. So that's what got me started. And it's been a fascinating learning experience. I went to a conference called the Sex and Love with Robots. At that time, this was an this is an annual conference. At that time, I thought, okay, I'm here to learn about sex with robots, but love with robots, you know, you people are kidding yourselves. I did not say that, and I'm glad I did it because now they call themselves the Love and Sex with Robots Conference. And I actually do think people will have some sort of strong affection, some people, I should say, for their robots. But a bigger issue or probably more relatable to all of us is really how sex is unfolding online, like with avatars and VR in, in its mer- various different formations. And I think that's what's really going to probably be more impactful. Of course, I'm only guessing, but because it's easy, it happens in your own house. As prices go down on this tech and as the tech advances, I do think that's going to be more of a pull. And I do think younger folks today who are reared on tech in ways that I wasn't are going to find that more comfortable. So my worries are that People are so stressed these days. Like the stress level of the world is extraordinary. The stats are mind blowing. Like the American Psychological Association puts out an annual survey every year called Stress in America. And it just, their numbers just keep increasing, even post COVID, to the point where last year's Stress in America survey identified that almost 30% of adults say their stress level is so high most days they can't function. It's extraordinary. And I have a variety of stats about stress levels, depression levels, suicide ideation, successful suicide, substance abuse. These We're seeing all of this in numbers more than we ever did before. And the reason I think that's relevant is because as this sex tech advances and becomes easier to access and people are struggling emotionally, it's going to be a lot easier to just turn on the computer and sort of have a sexual release than like what we've been talking about, how challenging sexual relationships are. I mean, they are. So we haven't perfected how to to have a human sexual relationship. And the sex tech is pretty simple. So I think we just need to have more conversation like you and I are having right now. So people feel a little more prepared. They're able to educate their young people or, you know, their children about how all this is unfolding and what are the pros and cons and what do you not get from sex tech? And I think if we all can stay mindful about that, then we can integrate this in a way potentially that would be satisfying for most people and enhance their sexual relationship. I mean, when we talk about the stats of sexual dysfunction for men and women, they are extraordinary. And we can use sex tech to help 
with sexual concerns and dysfunctions. I do that in my practice all the time. So I think it's just, we just need education out there to talk to people about how to do this mindfully in a way that will actually enhance your sex life. Without that education though, people are winging it and they're just going to, you know, sort of, I think, take the low hanging fruit, which might be some quick porn and then lose I think some really important sexual energy that is required in a relationship if you're going to have a long-term relationship. So that worries me too, that we're going to channel that potent stuff to tech. And then all that's left for the couple is things that are a little more boring and sedate, and that's going to be too boring. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hear about that too. I think one thing I hear about why people don't like porn, and this is in, I've seen this in heterosexual relationships, it's probably all relationships, but so one partner does view a lot of porn and then has erectile dysfunction in the bedroom. Again, it's probably a chicken and egg thing, which came first, needing more stimulation, but then people are just like, porn's bad, instead of, instead of like, well, why is this actually happening? And I mean, it can actually be quite complex, right? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I think perhaps if people leave your podcast today with one message, it's to resist putting any of these things we're talking about into an all good or all bad category. We really have to allow for nuance and shades of gray as all of this becomes, as our world becomes more complicated and more complex. If we don't have the ability for the shade of gray thing, we're going to lose a lot more than we're going to gain, I think. Totally. Let's switch gears to looking at divorce in midlife. So kids are out of the house. We are talking perimenopause, menopause, all the things. I have not, and I've, I've Google searched this multiple times, and maybe you've seen more. I have not seen a lot of data on the top reasons for divorce in midlife. But I have been just anecdotally, a, a divorce lawyer has said, I think it's untreated menopause. So there's a divorced lawyer's opinion. I think lack of communication, certainly lack of intimacy because of untreated sexuality, you know, concerns. What do you have a, a, a feel on like some statistics are like if you're going to get divorced, people, most people do it within seven years. Right. But there's this big group, my parents being one of them, they got divorced after 35 years. This like midlife divorce, like are people analyzing this? Are we figuring it out or are we just letting people go on without any tools and resources? Oh my gosh, such a good question. And do you know, I, people are not analyzing it to the degree that would enable you and I to have, I think, a really clear discussion about it. I just got this really thick book called, I don't remember what it was called, like Marriage and Divorce in America or something. It was like, you know, like an edited volume. I thought it's going to have all the answers. It's on my coffee table right now. It was way too expensive and I couldn't find one piece of good information in there. So they're bits and pieces, people speculate about stuff, but not in a way that I think we could put it together. I mean, I don't want to diss the book, but it's just that it's not answering. <laughs> no, but for how big, like the midlife divorce is the second biggest like chunk of when people get divorced. And there's, I, I can't find any data on why this is happening. I understand. It's so many complicated things for different people, but our expectations are now higher than ever. And I think that the things that used to motivate in terms of what we want from our partner, what we want for our sex life, they're higher than ever. And the things that used to motivate us to stay together was finances or staying, you know, keeping a family whole, 
these things are no longer, we don't even need a partner to have a baby anymore. So, so the things that used to motivate us to stay connected have fallen away. Our expectations are higher. So if a couple has challenges, which of course they will, they don't have that glue anymore to help them kind of like try to find a way through it. That's my superficial answer to your question. Yeah. And you know, I'm just like analyzing my question too, because I think in my question, I was presuming that the divorces were a bad thing and maybe they're not. From what I hear is like the devastation of, you know, it's challenging. It's certainly very expensive, but many people a couple of years after the divorce are living their best, happiest life ever. So maybe I was just bringing out my own bias of like married people shouldn't get divorced, but maybe I need to reconsider that. Uh-huh. Well, I love that you're thinking that way. I, I think it is a different world now. And I do think people grow because we're, we have access to such a variety of different kinds of intellectual stimulation and experience than a few decades ago. We grow and change, I would argue, faster than we than adults did decades ago. And because of that, it would just make sense that people are more apt to grow apart than they did in the past. And we don't need our partners the way we used to need them, like I said, for finances or whatever else. So if a person is prioritizing self-actualization in their life and new experience and profound experience or emotion, that person may be more likely to end a marriage because they feel like they can actualize better in a new situation. Mm-hmm. I saw a statistic, not to beat marriage with a stick, but 70% of divorces are initiated by the female. That was interesting to me. Isn't that? And that that is a very fascinating, a very fascinating statistic. Now, my understanding is that that's exclusively amongst people who have graduated high school or college or above, like sort of certain level of education. But women want more for themselves. They like just part of that expectation. People want more for our lives are limited and people want to live them. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I spend a lot of time talking about the heterosexual relationship and the female being low desire. But I want to, you did an article that I want to talk about to kind of flip it on its head. And your article is how couples can cope with a man's loss of interest in sex. Because this is not, this is not the small problem. This is very, very common too. I think just the stereotype is the, you know, the female has lower libido, lower interest, but that is not, some people would even argue that's not even the normal. Some people will say it's 50-50, some people, whatever. But so it's devastating though, because when you're like the stereotypical problem, it feels a heck of a lot better than like, I were the atypical problem. That's right. And yes, it is, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's common, but it's not uncommon for a man to have low desire. Sure isn't uncommon. Yeah. And you know, when I'm working with a couple with assuming heterosexual with that issue, first thing I'm thinking is, is he depressed or really stressed? Because that's very often a pivotal point, maybe not the whole thing, but a very important piece. So depression or stress or a medication for depression that is causing a problem because that's a very real issue too. Is he getting enough exercise and just basic pleasure in the world? I mean, that's a difficult one these days. People are so stressed and they don't even have the energy to go to a movie. They just fall on the couch in exhaustion. Sex is something that if we we want it, we probably need to feel engaged in the world and feel pleasure in the world. And 
connected to our partner in a long-term relationship. So these are kinds of the things I start looking at. And then sometimes people shut their desire down because they don't like the alternative. The alternative might mean they want to end the marriage. The alternative might mean they want to watch porn. They don't think they should. So then looking at like, how is their conscious mind uh, cut or unconscious mind cutting off desire because they think the alternative is too difficult. These are some of the things I think about. Mm -hmm. What about feelings of rejection from your partner or judging things that make the erection and the intimacy not work so well, but they're not at the top of our list of like things we think about when a guy doesn't want to have sex. It's easy to fail to recognize how rejecting we can be if we're not being conscious, whether it be not even outside of the bedroom, not making eye contact when we talk or being on the phone during dinner or not being conscious to schedule time together. All this stuff is critical in saying to our partners, I love you, I respect you. And if you're not communicating that in some very basic ways, it's likely to show up in the bedroom, a lack of willingness to be vulnerable, let's say. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, I think adding erect, like physiologic erectile dysfunction is I don't even want to deal with if my penis is going to work or not. So I'm just going to not do sex. A kind of an avoidance because of the erectile dysfunction. And then that will kind of just build on itself. I think that's so right. And um, plus, as hormones change for people over age, bodies change, erections change, just like a woman's arousal can shift too. But part of the sex education piece is we're not telling people that. So their bodies may be totally doing what normal bodies do at whatever age, but they're pathologizing themselves about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I just want to agree that, that these kinds of issues are couples issues. So erection challenges or libido, it really takes two to work together and everybody taking a look at their participation and how this is stuck or not moving in a positive direction. Sex is so complicated. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so weird now that like I got trained in the urology world, right? And it's like the man came to the doctor's office. We gave him an erection. Then he left, right? And now that I do this and I have podcasts and I understand sexuality like umpteenth millions times better than I did, which I still have more questions than answers. We're like, oh my God, the urologists are not helping. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is not like... Man comes in, gives erection, goes home. Man's life is solved. Like, no. You, and, you know, even just talking to some urologists were like, well, that's their problem to figure out. That's her issue to go to the doctor. That's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's a couple's. You can't just bring a super penis into the house and you've done nothing else to help him. He thinks he's bringing home a trophy prize. And she's like, what the heck did you just do? Right? Like you've given him a weapon with no tools, basically. Right. <laughs> really true. Yeah. I want to see a debate at a urology conference on that of like treat the penis versus treat the couple. What's the urologist's role? Where's that debate? It needs to happen. Okay. So you wrote a book with some neuroscientists called Unlocking the Sexy in Surrender. And my thought of it is like, do women really have low desire or is there like a dynamic that's off in the relationship? And really kind of this reconciliation we have in like the modern world with this really equality-based marriage with power dynamics that might not make for great sex. Uh-huh. So where this can get tricky, I think, is that many people respond really positively to power dynamics. And 
power in a sex life is like adds, I don't know what the analogy would be like, you know, fuel to the flame. And I think that people becoming comfortable and learning how to use power to the couple's advantage can be a huge plus in their trying to move their sex life in a, in a positive direction. So power play became a lot more popular when the Fifty Shades of Grey books came out, movies, but it still can be scary for people to play with because it's intense. So what happens is on the one hand, people long for intensity in the bedroom. It amps everything up and makes things exciting. However, it's also, it can feel vulnerable and almost embarrassing to tolerate a level of intensity. People will giggle, they'll lose eye contact. They'll try to like calm everything down rather than allow it to amp up. So part of learning how to use power is to sort of agree if people want to try it, is kind of agree together. First of all, it doesn't have to be all whatever 50 shades of gray was. Using power in the bedroom can simply just mean being more directive with somebody, sort of taking over, but not in a huge, big, dramatic way. It's almost maybe that nuance, that slight power play that can engage everybody and get people's attention and make things sexier. So part of what that book was about was helping people become comfortable giving and receiving that kind of energy because it can amp things up. I think that's just part of like, more of our primate sexuality. It's like a little more base part of sex, but if you can bring it in a little bit, like it's like uh, homeopathy, a little goes a long way. So helping people like allow it and be comfortable with it. And really the, like turning the dial, like we talked about, instead of going like too much and then being like, ah, <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, I love it. So one last question is you are married to a preeminent testosterone researcher. You like literally have biopsychosocial in your house. It's <laughs> awesome. So like your thoughts, uh, your thoughts on like, you know, hormone changes, desire discrepancy, the divorce in midlife, like people were just really preparing people from like, people don't even know that hormone changes are a thing in all bodies, right? Then they have the, then they come to you, the sex therapist, and they're like, we have these problems. Are you thinking in the back of your head, like, what are these people's testosterone levels? Oh. Or like, <laughs> <laughs> do you have more than erection? <laughs> right? But because I'm like, you know, with with the conversations you two must have over the dinner table is like, what a powerhouse to have that really solid hormonal background, and at the same time be like relationships, communication. How do we deal with this? So, I guess just expand on like your amazing biopsychosocial universe that you live in. Well, you know what? It is such a thrill for me personally. Like I can take articles to him and say, can you explain this? Sometimes he's like, this makes no sense to me either. <laughs> so, okay. You're like, Good. Yeah. But he serves, like, he's not just a husband. He reviews my blog posts for me because I do worry, like I'm going to miss something. It's hard to have all of these pieces in mind all the time that you're asking about the bio, the psychosocial. So it's really helpful to have the bio guy like reread and say, you know, what about this? So I do make use of it all the time. And it is fascinating, frankly. Every second we have a, a urologist. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's awesome. Urologists are amazing, but I have a strong bias. Um, so 
I mean, I think that I, I don't want to stereotype sex therapists or marriage couple therapists or the people who really come at it from the relational, you know, experiential, higher brain way of like, do you think when people are going to a sex therapist, sex coach, marriage therapist, that, you know, maybe it's some more should be thinking about like midlife hormone changes and, you know, what's happening in their body. And like, if you just don't feel good, your sex life isn't going to be good. Absolutely true. And it is almost everyone that I recommend, they go get their hormones checked. And um, when they come to see me, that, that we really need to have that basis and take that seriously. Absolutely. The amount of people I see, and, and again, I'm biased because I'm a urologist, but like they stopped having sex seven years ago, 10 years ago because of pain with sex. Like the undertreated general urinary syndrome of menopause is like changing relationship dynamics because nobody even knows it's a treatable thing. Isn't that right? And many physicians don't even know. And that's not to be disrespectful to physicians. I mean, it's just not necessarily knowledge that's taught in school. And oftentimes we're not trained how to talk about sex with our patients. We have limited time to be with our patients. So a lot of this information hasn't even gotten to basic GPs and and places where people get care. Yeah. I actually just heard from somebody on Instagram like today and they were like, I went to my doctor because so many people go to their doctor or see a sex therapist because of, you know, the Instagram or the podcast. And they're like, they had never heard of Intrarosa, which is intravaginal DHEA, right? Which is like a, a wonderful medication for, for vulvar changes of menopause. And so they said, I went to my physician, asked for this medication. Med- physician didn't know about it, but we got educated together. I got the medication and she's like, it's a game changer, Aww. game changer. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, like sex issues are biopsychosocial. I'm just, I'm beating a dead horse to somebody who, who listens, but like, it's all the pieces. It is. And it's so important because for many people, a satisfying intimate connection has such an impact, not only on their relationship, but their feeling in life, just in general, their feelings in the world. So these are very important pieces to a bigger picture outside of the bedroom. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. Can you tell us like what's next for you? What what are you excited about in this realm and and where can we find you? (laughs) Well, you know what I love is my uh, Psychology Today blog because I get to write very succinctly about points that I think are important or helpful for people. So, you know, they have bullet points and just like easy to digest. So that that is really what I enjoy more than a laborious book that takes a year of your life and kind of like takes over. So anyway, if you're interested in this topic, please come to my blog is what I would say. And that's where I hope to be spending more and more time. Awesome. And February 2024 testosterone conference in Florida, but hopefully, hopefully you're still doing it remotely. Um, yes for clinicians to learn more about both biopsychosocial and hormones. It's an awesome conference. I'm so glad I went last year. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited about it. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's really well done. Thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of You Are Not Broken. If you want to dig deeper with me, sign up for my adult sex education masterclass where you learn adult things like communication skills, anatomy lessons, and desire types, and how to talk to your doctor about sexual health concerns. If you want the adult sex education masterclass for free, join my monthly membership for more in-depth, exclusive content, more time with yours truly, 
a private podcast, coaching, and educational empowerment. And you can watch my interviews live and get them immediately without advertising. Head over to www.kellycaspersonmd.com for the membership and adult sex ed masterclass. Members get the masterclass for free. This podcast is presented solely for educational, entertainment, and informational purposes only. I am a doctor, but not your doctor in this format. And all of my platforms and guests, including on this podcast, are not giving individual medical advice or practicing medicine. See and consult with your own care team for your individual needs and concerns. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for the care and advice of a physician, therapist, or other qualified professional. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, in case you were curious about that, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. But I still love you. Using the information on this podcast or any of my platforms is at your own risk. Until next time, remember, you are not broken.